Comedy icon Margaret Cho and her podcast from Erios called The Margaret Cho brings you a weekly intimate conversation with an eclectic range of guests from stand-ups to drag queens to rock stars and activists. The conversations are organic, hilarious, and she never shies away from subjects like race, sexuality, or politics. You can listen to The Margaret Cho wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Monday, August 3rd. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. This is normally the long weekend, I think, in a lot of the country. In Newfoundland, we have uh, Wednesday off, typically. Um, it's called Regatta Day in St. John's. I should say in St. John's, we have Wednesday off. And it's like it's, it's the best because it's the, it's the holiday that if it rains, it gets moved to the next day. It's the weather-dependent stat holiday. It's the greatest. But this year, it's not going to happen because... But it doesn't matter if it rains, you know. None of us are really going out and getting together for the Royal St. John's Regatta. Anyway, if you're stuck inside, I hope uh, I hope this might be able to help you out because of some of our favorite conversations of the year, starting with the one, the only, Elton John. Elton John, we caught him in between tours to talk about his memoir, Me. We didn't have a whole lot of time with him, so we got down to the nitty-gritty. We got that show on the road. My conversation with Elton John about his life, about addiction, about music, and about what he wants his kids to remember about him. After that, from Reggie Dwight to Reginald Dwayne Betts. Reginald Dwayne Betts is a poet. Right, right, Reggie Dwight is Elton John's real name. Reginald Dwayne Betts is a, is a poet, um, and he also spent time in prison. So his new poetry collection, Felon, is absolutely groundbreaking. And he'll tell you his amazing story and what he gets out of teaching. He's also a, a professor. And then finally, Carly Rae Jepsen, one of the finest Canadian pop performers of all time, the architect behind the massive hit Call Me Maybe, talks about that song and talks about – her process and how she writes pop songs, which is essentially that she writes a kajillion of them and whittles them down. All right, show starts now. Welcome to the show. Take a listen to this. Elton John sings the kind of songs people go to in the best and worst moments of their lives. And for that, he's won Grammys and Oscars and Tonys. He sold more than 300 million records, including the biggest selling single ever, Candle in the Wind, the updated version for Princess Diana. Earlier this year, Elton postponed dates of his final farewell tour because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But recently announced he'll be back on the road next year for the remaining dates. I was lucky enough to catch Elton John between shows last fall, around the time his new memoir, Me, came out. He's a busy guy, so we got right to it. Elton John, welcome to Q. Thanks for, thanks for making the time. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. So I want to play you something. We had uh, your partner, Bernie Toppin, on our show not that long ago. I wanted to play you something from our conversation. Uh, take a listen to this. Obviously, when I write something, I have a preconceived idea of where I think it should go because I have a melodic 
idea in my head. But once it gets in his hands, it could go totally at 360 and go somewhere else. So for the most part, yeah, it, it usually turns out to be better than what I'd imagined. That's Bernie Toppin talking about his musical partnership with Elton John, who's my guest. Elton, what's yeah. it like hearing that? Um, it, I, I get asked this question a lot. As, does Bernie always like, has he ever argued or said he didn't like something that I've written to his lyric? And the answer to that is no, he's never said anything, although he must have felt sometimes, as he says in that quote, um, that he has an idea uh, of what the melody might be. And I'd sometimes go, obviously, I have no idea what his melody is, but I go away with mine. And to his credit, he's never actually said, I, no, I don't like that. Um, it was very kind of him to say that. Um, that obviously is going to be times, you know, when I'm writing to his lyrics that he... Because he's much more musical than it was when he started out writing at the very first in the 1967, um, he's much more sophisticated now. So, you know, it, it probably comes as a bit of a shock. But um, it's worked out really well. He's never, he's never said anything that he didn't, that he didn't like anything. Um, he's never even been sulky or suggested that he didn't like anything. So, you know, in, in that 53 years of writing, that's a pretty amazing thing to happen. And that's why we've lasted such a long time. That's why our relationship flourishes. And that's why we love each other. What, what is it about that relationship that keeps, keeps you coming back? I think the fact that we don't see each other a lot. I mean, I did an album called Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dot Cowboy, which, of course, he came up with the title. Um, I was Captain Fantastic and he became the Brown Dirt Cowboy. Um, very, very um, perceptive of him to uh, think of that. Um, and he lives in California most of the time, and well, all of the time, and I live in um, England most of the time. So we don't see each other very often. But I can honestly say that in the last three or four years, we've gotten closer and closer um, because of his family and uh, my family and the children. Um, and, you know, we're in a wonderful, contented place. Um, he was extremely happy with the film, I think, because in the film he's portrayed by Jamie Bell and his character comes across as the glue in the movie that holds my life together. And that's the way it's been. He was the constant there. The life changed so many people came, people went, but Bernie was always there. And Bernie, you know, was always there for me without judging me. I don't, and, mean, um, I don't mean to be playing a version of the dating game with you here, but I, I asked Bernie... Um, you know what? What song is the perfect example of that magic that exists between your two relationship? Before I tell you what he said, I'm, I'm wondering what you think. Um, well, we all fall in love sometimes from Captain Fantastic with my choice. Wise man say it looks like rain today. It crackled on the speakers and trickled down the sleepy subway train. Heavy eyes could hardly hold us Aching legs that often told us It's all worth it We are fall in love sometimes It's a great song. His, his, his answers were your song and sacrifice. And you can tell everybody This is your song It may be quiet Okay. Pretty good. Yeah. I think those were the right answers, all three of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If Alex Trebek was here, I think we'd, we'd, we'd win the Daily Double. 
Good. Um, there you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> in in your in your new memoir uh, called Me, congratulations on the book, by the way. Thank you. You you write about the time in the late seventies where Bernie gave you the lyrics to White Lady, White Powder, a song about a, a cocaine addict, and and you you knew deep down it was about you. What what was that experience like? Um. You know, I was so out of it. I wasn't. I just, you know, I just wrote the song. It was just another song for me. Um, I knew it was about me, um, but I still didn't have the temerity to own up to it. Um, you know, that's how um, much of denial I was in. Um, I thought it was about Cher. <laughs> I blamed it on her. Poor thing. Yeah. <laughs> When, when, when cocaine came into your life, you were on your way to becoming, I mean, the biggest star in the world. But, you know, I, I've read enough books for the show, Elton, to know that, you know, some people shy away from talking about sex and, and drugs and, and partying. But it's, it's something that you talk about openly. And I wonder if that's something you've always felt compelled to do or was that something that be, became more gradual to you? No, I've always tried to be honest. I mean, I think the film was honest, although it was it, it is a fantasy um, based on the truth. The book I was writing for my children because um, I wanted them when they were old enough to read the book and to know what my life was like and the actual truth. Um, I didn't want to write a salacious book and, and, and run people into the ground, but I had to talk openly about my relationship with my mother um, towards the end because it wasn't a very good relationship. It was like oil and water. And she'd done interviews with the press, and, and I, just, I hadn't answered those, and I just wanted to put the record straight. Um, um, I wish my relationship had been better, but I just wanted to put down on on paper what my life had been like, and it was quite cathartic reading it after it was all done and put together. Um, it made me realise, you know, there was a lot I could have said, a lot more I could have put in the book, but you know, it's three hundred and sixty pages anyway, and it's been a roller coaster of life. But what a life I've had! I mean, I've had the most incredible life, oh, yeah. met the most incredible people, survived so many things. Um, because of my determination and my talent, probably. Um, but I'm, I don't lie down and die, although I nearly lied down and died. I, I nearly died when I did the, um, you know, before I asked for help with the addiction. And that was a crossroads for my life, obviously. If I hadn't have done for that, I wouldn't have written the book. I wouldn't be here. So that was a, a big um, um, turning point in my life. It was an epiphany in my life. And when I suddenly got sober and decided to live another life completely, then stuff happened to me that was still bad, but I could cope with it much better. And I didn't have to, you know, run away from it. Um, the reason I, I became a drug addict is because I didn't know how to deal with life on life's terms. Mm. And um, you know, I was on stage and I got applause and I felt safe on stage. When I came off stage, I was stuck with me and me didn't know how to cope with everyday stuff. And, and because I was immature, and, uh, and when I got sober, I started to be, try to become an adult instead of a child. Oh, Lord Moses, I have been deceived. Now the wind has changed direction, and I have to leave. If you're just tuning in, I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Elton John is my guest. His memoir called Me is out everywhere now. I think 
about that sometimes. I suffer from like a panic disorder. I'm a musician too, Elton. And I suffer from like a panic disorder and I can have pretty bad panic attacks before I go on stage. But there's something about actually being on stage. I never have the problem there. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not. So, what, what do you think that is about performing? That sort of like, you know, when I you think were, it's be- yeah. I think it's the approval I was seeking as a, car, a child. You know, um, I got approval and love when I sang at the family gatherings or weddings, and I felt safe and, and, and happy. Um, and then I came off stage, and I, you know, again I had to deal on what was going on in my life. Um, and and it's all, it, you know, you have to do a lot of work on yourself. And I did a lot of work on myself when I got sober. And um, Came to, I had to go back and go through my whole life piece by piece. And, um, you know, your childhood affects you so much as yeah. you go older. Yeah. It's the template of how you live your life. And you recover from that and all the damage. All the Not everyone had a bad childhood. People have great childhoods. David, my husband, had a wonderful childhood. Um, but my childhood was in a different era. It was in the 50s, very conservative. People didn't talk about anything, not sex, didn't show each other affection. Um, things were very secretive. Um, and I grew up during that time when children weren't allowed to say anything. They were seen and not heard. Um, it was a different era. So I mean, I've come to terms with that, that I grew up in an era which I loved because there were so many things being invented, television, washing machines, things like that. It was every week there was something new that was great. But actually the actual dogma of life inside a family was, you know, you, know, you, you didn't talk about things, you didn't, you know, so you didn't talk about sex. You gossiped about your neighbors. If a girl was pregnant, she got sent away. It was that kind of environment. I didn't like that very much. It was, it was a fearful environment to grow up in. But it was the environment I had to grow up in. But, I, you know, you, you go back and you think, well, that's why I became who I am because I was frightened of everything. I was frightened. Fear was ruling my life. And so you spend the rest of your life, and I'm 72 now, and I've come to the happiest point of my life where nothing is wrong. But it took me 72 years to be able to say this. Um, but I've done a lot of work on myself, and I loved my life. I've loved it. Even the bad parts have meant if you use the bad parts to get to the good parts, then you're doing something good. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say that you're, you wrote this book for your kids so they can learn a bit about their dad. And, and, you know, while you were telling me that story, all I could think is what a different life your kids are going to be leading than the one you led, even just growing up in the one you grew up in, right? Well, I, when I became a dad... Um, and we gave great thought to being a dad. You just don't say, well, it's a great, it's the biggest responsibility in life is raising children. There's no question about it. And if you can leave this earth um, having raised your children well and they're happy, that's the greatest thing you can achieve. Forget your work, forget your you know, talent or anything. The greatest thing for me when I leave this earth is did I give my kids a good life? Did I teach them well? Um, I was determined I wasn't going to hit them. I determined I was going to shout at them. I was going to be disciplined. They were going to be disciplined, but they were going to discipline in a, in a way that we talked about things. And you know, why are you doing this? Why? Do, and I don't want them to live any of, of their life in fear, and they don't. Um, they're amazing children. We have a wonderful relationship with them. And, I, you know, my whole life was built on eggshells. That is a horrible thing for a child to grow up on. And I'm not blaming anyone for it. It was the way it was. Um, but it was, you know... Those eggshells made me more determined than ever to make something of myself. Elton, you've been so generous with your time. And I, I got to tell you, it's been like a real life goal talking to you. Uh, just one thing I want to ask, though. I mean, you opened the show with Benny and the Jets. But the song you decide to go out on is Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. I mean, at, at one point, that'll be the last song you sing on the tour. Why that one? Because that's the title of the song, or the title of the tour. It's like, goodbye. I'm saying goodbye to the Yellow Brick Road. When are you gonna come down? When 
I'm going back to uh, my plow. <laughs> my plow being my house, I don't know, but it's um, it's the. You know, I wouldn't close on your song. Goodbye, Yellow Beat Road is the one. I go up in the, on, on the elevator and I walk into the screen, and it's the most appropriate song to close with. Okay, so I know our ten minutes is up, Elton. But I listen. I I'm gonna I'm gonna risk being tackled out of my chair to play you this clip. Believe me, it's worth it. So we had Rod Stewart on cue a little while ago, and we asked him about you. We pulled a few clips of you guys going at each other in the press and got his reaction. Take a listen. First of all, I'd like to uh, thank Rod. We go back a long way, and we've been rivals and competitors ever since in a really good-natured way. For example, once he was playing at uh, Earl's Court (laughs) and he had a big balloon above Earl's Court promoting his record and I had it shot down. We have been in contact with each other a lot just lately. I've been emailing each other. Oh, really? Because our albums more or less came out at the same time and comparing how the sales are and I'm winning. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going with you dressed like that, I can assure you. Why not? Without, I'm not going with that hat on. Why not? Look at you. Looks like Dusty Springfield in a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> That's Rod Stewart and Elton John. Rod, when I Google you and Elton John, the first thing that comes up is frenemies. Yeah, frenemies. Yeah, yeah. We're we're still at it now. You know, I'm probably going to get in touch with him, see how this new album does, but um, not in his good books at the moment. Really, I love him dearly, though. He's a good pal. I'm sure you are. How did that? How did that start with you guys? Kind of having fun with one another in the press. Do you know, I don't really know. We were both discovered by once again Long John Baldry, and um, you know, Long John gave us our names. I'm Phyllis, and Elton is Sharon. Elton, that's a little <laughs> bit of my conversation with Rod Stewart. What's it yeah. like to hear that? Um, Rod, and, uh, Rod is in the book a lot. He is. Rod has been one of my big friends throughout my career. We've been frenemies for all of our life. We both became successful at the same time in America. Actually, he became more successful quicker. Um, and we've always played tricks on each other. Um, and he's very, very funny. He's got the best sense of humor. We've had so many hilarious times together. We went on safari together. We went to Rio Carnival together. Um, and, yeah, it's... He's just one of these people that when we get together and we haven't seen each other for a long time, we laugh and laugh and we just lethal with each other. He's horrible to me and I'm horrible to him. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Well, Elton, I know you've got about a million of these more to do. I don't, I don't want to keep you. I, uh, Thank you. I just, want, I just want to say, man, thanks for, for, thanks for all the music. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see you soon, hopefully down the road. All right. Thanks, Tom. Elton John, his memoir is called Me, and it's available now. When I spoke with Elton, he was in the middle of his Farewell Yellow Brick Road Tour, all 300 dates of it. He had to put it on hold because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But recently, he announced he's rescheduled the remaining dates for next year. His last stop will be in Glasgow in December 2021. Sound off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with, from something else, is back for another season. 
David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. November 5th, 1980. I have called in my wasted youth the concrete slabs of prison home, awakened to God's keeping tabs on my breath, Bartered with every kind of madness, the state's mandatory minimums and my own callous. I've never called a man father. And while sleep, twice wrecked cars, drank whiskey straight, nothing suffices. I fell in love with sons I wouldn't give my name. Once swam at midnight in Atlantic's violence. Under the water, rattling broke the silence. I cussed men with fists like hand bones and got beaten to dust. Buried memories in my gut that would fill a book. I've carried pistols, but I've never held a bullet. There is frightful little left for me to hold in fear. Definitely not the debt that threatens to hollow me. I have a bored transparency. Confess to so-and-so, but what if it matters? In this life, so much has troubled, and a few things that didn't. Never failed to baffle. That is Reginald Dwayne Betts. As you can tell, he's a poet. But he also happens to be a lawyer, a graduate of Yale Law School. And before he was any of those things, Reginald spent eight years in prison from the ages of 16 to 24. His third collection of poetry, Felon, is an examination of all of that, of that word, felon, and of life after incarceration. A little while back, Reginald Dwayne Betts joined me from New Haven, Connecticut, to talk about his book of poetry. He started by telling me about who he was as a kid before he entered the prison system at 14 or 15. 14, 15, basketball player. I was an honor student. I love books. And it's strange, you know, I was imagining a future that I didn't necessarily understand in a sense that I thought I'd go to college, you know, thought I'd play basketball for Georgia Tech. And everything I was doing, you know, like 85% of what I was doing was sort of geared towards that. But it was that 15% that was always up in the air. What was that 15% like? I don't know. I mean, if you go back to 14, the 15% was sort of like just talking too much, just maybe being a 14-year-old, not knowing how to curb my tongue, being too sarcastic for my own good. Uh, Also trying to fit in, trying to fit in in a community where, you know, jail and incarceration and fights and violence was sort of more likely than like college. And then by the time I got to 15, I hit a corner. You know, I was in high school, had a year high school under my belt, and it was really seriously becoming to be a challenge to sort of navigate the space and figure out exactly who I was going to be as a person who was in honest classes, but also was in a neighborhood where it was a lot of fights and a fair amount of violence. And so it was a bit of a struggle. And then, you know, one thing leads to another, and the next thing I know, I'm with some friends with a pistol in my hand, Carjacking somebody. So, yeah, that's December 7th, 1996. Well, what, what do you remember from that day? <laughs> Everything. First, it was a Sunday. I know my mom had to go to work that day, so she was, she was gone early in the morning, and I was out with some friends. I guess it was a—no matter of fact, it was a Saturday. 
because I got locked up on December 8th, which was a Sunday. And that's when my mom had went out to work, and me and the guy who committed the robbery, we went out to um, go shopping. But on the 7th, I just was hanging with friends. It was me, my man. We went to go chop it up with one guy that we I knew, but I didn't know well. He was a classmate. And we were smoking weed, and the next thing I know, he had a friend come over, so now it's four of us. And I don't know how we started talking about crime and robbery and, and violence and the need to get some money, but we did. And it was all conjecture because we didn't have, like, the means or the opportunity, right? Mm. And then um, and then I, I know his cousin came over, and his cousin had a gun. And what was conjecture at first became a possibility. And I couldn't blame it on somebody if I wanted to, you know. Next thing I know, it was the five of us riding in a car to a mall in Virginia, and it was me volunteering to carry the pistol because I figured if I had it, nothing too bad would happen. Right. And then we robbed a man. And you live with it forever. You, you pled guilty to carjacking, attempted robbery, and a firearm charge. You were sentenced as an adult despite the fact that you were 16. You spent eight years in prison, 14 months of that in solitary confinement. And that's where you discovered poetry, right? How? How? So in solitary confinement, they usually strip everything from you, including books. But at a prison, they always have people in protective custody. They have people in administrative segregation. And so it's a mix of folks that's back there in that unit, and they create an underground library of sorts. And you just ask for a book, and somebody slides one under your cell. You don't know who slid it to you. You don't know why, besides the fact that you asked for it. And uh, somebody slid to me the Black Poets by Dudley Randall. And I read a poem by Etheridge Knight about a man in prison. And uh, I read his bio, and I found out that he had been in prison. And I'd always, at least since being sentenced to prison, decided that I would be a writer because I wanted to do something with the time. But I didn't really know what that meant at the time. And then um, I read that poem, and I decided I would be a poet because Etheridge Knight had been a poet. Well, do you remember that poem at all? <laughs> yeah, I remember it. It was uh, for Freckle-Faced Gerald. It was about a 16-year-old being raped in prison. And, um, you know, at the time I thought me and my cohort of young dudes were going to prison as teenagers, 14, 15, 16-year-olds. I thought we were the first iteration of this thing. But Knight had written that poem in the 70s, and it changed my perspective, and it made me realize, I think, how when I had some strengths and some skills that this kid, Gerald, didn't have, but also that I was a part of a bigger cycle of injustice and, and that being a poet was a way to write about it and, and to think about it. What was it? Was it just about the internal kind of thinking about it? Was it also about maybe someone ha- being able to read the poems that you nah, wrote in, man, in the same know, way that you wrote it? You, you know, you read that one. Nah, you know, I mean, being a poet is like being an MC, And so you, you could imagine wanting to be a novelist or wanting to write these long essays that, that we read. Yeah. But if you're a poet, you could give somebody everything in two minutes. And they could walk away with it ringing in their head. And that's the thing that hit me. You know, he had taught me something about history. He had taught me something about the justice system. He had taught me something about being vulnerable. He also taught me something about the ways in which I wasn't as vulnerable as I might be. And it was all in a poem that I could read in 90 seconds. And so, you know, part of the power of poetry for me was that I could get this to somebody in less than two minutes and had them walk away with it in their head for days if I was good enough. And there, were, and there were things in you that you wanted to get out. There's still things in me that I want to get out. 
In addition to being a poet and a writer, you're a lawyer. You graduated from Yale Law School. You've written extensively about your experience becoming a lawyer, your difficulty with the admissions process, getting called to the bar. I have to ask, instead of going to the details on that, like what, what kept you persevering? What kept you pursuing a legal career despite all that? Well, I mean, I think you, a different question might be what kept me persevering, staying alive despite all of it. You know, you commit a crime and you feel guilty and you got to deal with that remorse and that regret. And then you get put in an institution that breaks men and you know you're a boy. And so persevering and surviving prison and surviving incarceration, I guess, became the blueprint for persevering and surviving everything I faced post-incarceration. And the question why I did it is I think um, it's not the best answer or the most useful answer. But sometimes if you convince yourself that survival is enough, you can start saying that survival is accomplishing the absurd. So for me, survival was getting into law school, and then it was getting into a top law school, and then it was passing the bar. And all of these things were sort of absurd because there's many people in the country that survive without doing those things, but I needed to set the bar high enough that um, it made me reach. It's it's really powerful. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Q. My name is Tom Power. I'm speaking with the poet Reginald Dwayne Betts about his new poetry collection, Felon. Um, People listening in Canada will know that that term felon is not a legal term we use here, though I think it's still pretty familiar to us. Why why did you want to use that word in particular, felon? What's what's the word significance to you? I have to say I'm baffled. What word do you use in Canada instead of felon? Uh, Instead of felony, we use offense. And instead of felon, we use offender. Okay, okay. Yeah. I used it because uh, no matter what your successes are, many people want to just imagine that this is the only thing that you are, a felon. And I wanted to write a book that proclaimed it because it becomes the sort of elephant in a room. It becomes the elephant in most rooms that I enter. But what people imagine a felon is, is so different from what their brother is or their cousin or their uncle or their sister or their mom. And so what I wanted to do was write a book that uh, approached the issue, but did it in such a way that people, I hope, would see a bit of themselves and a bit of their family members and a bit of their world so that the whole book sort of refutes the title. Because it's such an easy word, right? It's such an easy word to dehumanize people. Yeah, and it's not even, you know, the strange thing is it's both easy and absurd because we all know people who have made mistakes. And I think that, at least in the United States now, I mean, we all know people who have made mistakes that rise to the level of criminal offenses, whether it's theft or robbery or whatever. But we all have examples, both in the public space and in our personal lives, that reflect how the worst thing that a person has done isn't isn't who that person is. And yet when you use a word like felon, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to create a shorthand to judge or characterize a person. So the book um, opens with a poem called Guzzle. And for people listening to this who might not be familiar with that term, what, what, what's a guzzle? So it's a, it's a Persian form. And the, the basic structure of the poem is that you have a phrase or a word that repeats in each couplet. And so in this case, it's after prison. And what it allows you to do is to create a sort of pearl necklace. And each couplet is a pearl. And it's its own beautiful thing, but it doesn't necessarily have to connect to the next one. And so in mind, the refrain is after prison, and I'm, I'm trying to, like, invite you to think about all of the ways that prison remains with you after prison. And then the last couple of always is the writer signing his name. And so in this case, in prison, everybody called me Shahid, and so I sign all my guzzles, Shahid. Yeah, you're right. You've come so far, beloved, and for what? Another song, then sing Shahid, your love, not shipwrecked, after prison. Yeah. Why did everyone call you Shahid? I picked it because— uh, 
I was in prison in the time period where so many guys was choosing to name themselves something else because, you know, we all wanted to reinvent ourselves from the person who had committed the crime that landed us in prison. Or we just wanted to reinvent ourselves from the person who we were in that moment and be something better. And I didn't want to necessarily be Muslim. I didn't want to necessarily be in the nation of Islam, but I did want to reinvent myself at the time. And so I said uh, Shahid because I, I looked it up in this book of names, and, and Shahid means witness. And I figured, what am I here for except to be a witness? You're going to read another poem from your new collection. This one is called Essay on Reentry. Um, before you read it and, and take your time, can, can you, can you uh, tell me a, a bit about it? Yeah, I think I wrote a number of poems called Essay on Reentry. And it's this thing about, like, sort of trying to explain what it means to come home. But it's all kinds of versions of that. So it's four poems with the same name, and each is trying to imagine what it means to come home. And this one in particular is saying that, like, you come home, you finish your bid, you enter the world, but you still know what you've done, and you carry that around with you. And some people expect that you should just leave it alone. If you're a person like me who's a writer who as a thinker is always thinking about prison, people think, Dwayne, why don't you just choose a different subject? And this poem is trying to say, how do you talk about something else confronted with the absurdity of this thing? And and then this poem is going through the crime, but it's also going through an engagement with a hypothetical person that, that the speaker had robbed. And it's just like the speaker's just confronting this question of how it's not just it, it almost is just him that could let it go because in this case, the victim is like, yeah, you know, I kind of moved past it. And he's like wondering how that's even possible because, you know, he as the person that committed the crime can't let it go. Essay on reentry. Telling a story about innocence won't conjure acquittal. And after interrogation and handcuffs and the promises of cops blessed with an arrest before the first church service ended, I become a felon. The tape recorder sparrowed my song back to me, but guilt lacks a melody. Listen, who hasn't waited for something to happen? I know folks die waiting. I know hurt is a wandering song. I was lost in fear. Strange how violence does that makes the gun hand vulnerable. I cannot wait and had no idea what I was becoming. Later, in a letter, my victim tells me I was robbed there. The food was great and drinks delicious. But I was robbed there. I would consider going back. He said it as if I didn't know. Why would he return to a memory like that? As if there is a kind of bliss that rides shotgun with the awfulness of a handgun in a dark night. There is a Tupac song that begins with a life sentence. Imagine. I scribbled my name on the confession as if autographing a book. Tell your mother that. Say the gun was a kiss against the sleeping man's forehead. Say that you might have been his lover and that on a different night he might have moaned. That's my guest, Reginald Dwayne Betts, reading his poem, Essay on Reentry, or one of the poems named Essay on Reentry from his collection, Felon. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about, um, you know, Dwayne being a graduate of uh, Yale Law School and, you know, being a lawyer as well. And, you know, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but I want to touch on it some more. The poetry and the law may not seem to have a lot in common, but you bring those two disciplines together in four poems in this collection, which I, I found really, really interesting. And you've created them by redacting the majority of words from legal documents, the words that aren't blacked out form poetry. So first of all, can you tell me a little bit about the documents you chose? Yes, I chose some lawsuits filed by the Civil Rights Corps 
and they were the organization basically suing on suing different cities and localities on behalf of people who had been locked up because they couldn't pay bail or because they had traffic tickets. And what would happen is the court would lock people up and then charge them, say, if you owed $1,000, they would say, well, we'll pay you $25 a day to sit in jail, and once that debt is paid, you could be free. And I thought, you know, in the United States, there's this profound ability to say, my rights have been wrong, and I'm going to take that in front of a judge, and I'm going to have a judge decide if this thing that happened to me was constitutional. So you can say, but but what does this mean if in this 70-page complaint that's actually making that argument, nobody will ever read? So you got something that's sort of like the height of the possibility of justice that won't be read even by the people who mm. lives it exactly touches. And I thought, well, poetry is a thing that could be consumed, understood, held close to heart by the people whose lives are actually touched by the world in which the poem creates. And so I said, well, how will I turn this document into poetry? And I just figured, what if I just redacted everything that was superfluous? What if I defined the superfluous as everything that's not going to the heart of the matter, going to what strikes you in the gut, getting rid of all the legalese, getting rid of all of the fancy words, getting rid of all of the pretense and just saying this is what actually happened. And so I turned those 70-page complaints into four-page poems, five-page poems, eight-page poems. And the idea was to, to write something that if a person who was involved with it heard it would say, yeah, that was my experience right there, and that's why I went before a judge. There's something powerful about that, hey? Like I spoke to the Canadian poet Billy Ray Belcourt. Um, he's a you know, great Canadian in, indigenous poet, and he did the same thing with, with treaty documents. He said there was a power in taking these documents that were supposed to be sort of the documents of his oppression or the documents of things that were not held up to by the Canadian government and creating poetry from them. I think, I think he got meaning from that, and it sounds like you got meaning from that as well. Yeah, and I think not only you know not only me and him, but the people who, not and not even just the people that we represent, the groups that we come from, but I think people who are sort of standing adjacent to us, and even sometimes people who are standing opposed to us, they read the work and they recognize that, you know, I didn't I didn't actually understand what was going on, or maybe I understood it intellectually, but now I understand it in an emotional way that allows me to imagine acting. Some people go through a hard situation and they spend the rest of their lives sort of running in the opposite direction, trying to get away from it. I mean, just through this conversation and through your work, you seem to have made a choice to, to face your past over and, and over again through your work, both as a poet and as a lawyer. Um, tell me about that. Was that intentional? I guess it's a kind of gravity. You know, I came home and I told myself I wouldn't tell people I'd been in prison. I came home when I was 24 years old and I was able to sort of slip into college. Well, actually, you know, then I would apply for a job, and uh, I would meet somebody I respect, and they would wonder why, as intelligent as they perceived me to be, I hadn't been to college. And was I going to lie? So I'd just say, look, I just got out of prison. Mm. And I never intended on saying it, but I just, you know, what else could I say? And then I would go to college, and I would meet a mentor or somebody who would become a mentor, but they also would wonder why I was just starting college. And, I mean, I had this whole eight years in prison that I was carrying, like a— albatross around my neck and I might just make up a lie, an invention, a reason why it took me so long to go to college, but I don't know. And the moment I would always just confess, meet my wife and she could find out, she could Google or she could start asking me what I was doing when I was 21 or 22 or 19 or 18. And so it just got to the point where I recognized um, unwittingly that my whole life was going to be running back into prison again and again. And you could sort of accept it, or you could be the man that disbelieves gravity and tries to jump off a roof. 
Reginald Dwayne Betts is a poet and a lawyer. His third book of poetry is called Felon, and it's out now. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. There are all sorts of risks that come when you find massive success, and famous best-selling authors definitely aren't immune from the problems of just being human. Stephanie Meyer's fans adore her work, especially young adults. She's the author of Twilight, the Twilight series. You might know the film Saga based on the book, starring Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson. You know, regular teenage stuff. Vampires, love triangles, werewolves. But the huge success that Stephanie found with her books led to an unpleasant experience. When she was writing a hugely anticipated follow-up to the Twilight Saga, someone leaked a rough version of the first 14 chapters online. And as a result, Stephanie put the book on hold for a long time. Tomorrow on Q, you'll hear her talk about how and why the book is finally coming out. But she explains that the initial shock of that leak really threw her off. It was it was a really overwhelming time right then. I mean, I was completely um, sideswiped by that one. I didn't I didn't know where the leak had come from. I didn't know if my computer had been hacked. I didn't know what was going on, and it was um, right in the middle of a lot of. You know, the movie was going on and there was so much scrutiny uh, and I just was super overwhelmed. I'm a, a fairly shy, introverted person and and all of that was real outside my comfort zone. And so it just kind of felt like, you know, too much, too much um, at that point. And it was it wasn't something I it took me a while to be able to write anything just because I was so nervous that that my computer wasn't safe and that I you know, who knows who's looking at things. Uh, as an introvert, you kind of want to work in, in your own dark little space where no one knows what you're doing. Um, so, you know, that was that was a lot of the emotion that was just being overwhelmed and, and a little paranoid. <laughs> how did you get over it? Time. Like now it's hard to remember how that felt because it was so long ago. And there was, and time to be alone with the story. Um, it helped, you know, I, I have a fairly good idea of where the leak came from at this point. I was going to ask, <laughs> did, you, I, did you ever solve that mystery? I'm pretty sure, you know, it's just, it, before things got crazy, I belonged to um, writer's group. I had friends, a family who uh, I would let read a copy of what I was working on now and then. Um, always people who, you know, they would never make a copy and share it. Obviously not because they were my friends, <laughs> but I apparently was wrong about that. Oh my, what a, if you don't mind me saying so, what a betrayal. Well, I don't think anybody meant harm by it. I think it was more of an enthusiasm, but you know, it wasn't something obviously I would have said yes to. Um, but yeah, and it got bigger, obviously, than I would have wanted. Of course. Did you did, did you ever reach out to that person? I didn't. I did not. Well, um, you know, I, I what would I, I say? You know, I, I, I think you did this horrible thing to me. You know, it doesn't help anything. That is Stephanie Meyer, author of the Twilight series. Her new book is called Midnight Sun, and you'll hear about it all tomorrow right here on Q. My name is Tom Power. Summer Love from Carly Rae Jepsen's latest album, Dedicated Side B. 
It's a collection of songs she left off her last year's record, Dedicated. And when I say left off her last year's record, she had a lot to leave off. Basically, every time she sits down to work on one of her big pop records, she ends up writing about 200 songs. And then she puts them through a little song version of the TV show Survivor, just eliminating a whole bunch of them until she's finally made her final selections. And as you're about to hear, she's very dedicated to the art of building a traditional album track by track. Carly stopped by the Q studio when Dedicated came out to let you into her songwriting process. First, though, I wanted to congratulate her on a big award she just got. Uh, it was handed out by SOCAN, which is the organization that looks after uh, songwriters and composers in Canada. So it was a massive hit from a few years ago, Call Me Maybe, the most performed song in SOCAN history. It recognized Carly as a songwriter, too, not just as a singer, which is probably what you know her best as. And I was curious about it. You know, does she see herself as a songwriter first? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, when I was younger, obviously, I was addicted to just singing. But as soon as I got hooked on the idea of being able to, like, emote through writing, I uh, I think that sort of changed focus and passions for me as my number one thing. How did that start? Like, what were you writing about at first? Do you <laughs> remember the first one? Yeah, I do. I wrote a protest song. <laughs> I, have a, I have a guitar. Do you want to play it? It's called They're Cutting Down the Big Trees. Do you remember it? <laughs> it's so bad. Can you play it on the it's guitar? So, uh, things developed. I mean, I, I no. Do you no, want to? No, I don't. I, I, the words were, I was seven. They're Wait. cutting down the big trees. I heard it just today. It won't be much longer now, and I wonder why it has to be this way. <laughs> Very bad. Very bad. Sounds, um, sounds pretty good to me. Oh, that's sweet. No, it, it was... I'm a little uh, choked up. Oh. And then the real time that I actually kind of was taking it a bit more seriously was was a, a silly reason I had a crush on a boy. And I was in high school, and I wrote him a letter, and it said, Dear You. And then it had a bit of a melody to me, so I ended up um, asking my dad for his guitar, and that's sort of when things took off. No way. Yeah. Yeah, he showed me some of the chords, and it was simple Elvis Presley kind of chords, and I was like, okay, this is so fun. And then I just was, you know, writing a lot, showing my parents, and they were saying, I like that one, or oh, why don't you try this? And then I just um, kind of got more and more into it. And then I got lucky enough to start collaborating with some more professional writers than, than me at the time, and I, I learned a lot from them. So, yeah. When were you thinking that you were just going to be one of these people that, not just, by the way, but you were going to be one of these people that just write songs for others writes hits no i'm too much of a show kid is that so you no know, yeah I, I mean there was a weird moment also with my father when i was little he used to like accompany me and, and we'd sing at these like talent shows and things like that and um i can remember getting on stage and he wasn't nervous i felt very confident and very at home and i remember looking at him and he was just shaking and i think in the microphone i was like dad come into the spotlight you're okay let's do it and it was just such a rush it was so fun to feel um i don't know like you you had this like room to be powerful and playful and and kind of create a, uh, an energy in the room. And I, I'm addicted to that as well. What were you guys playing? Uh, Eternal Flame Close by the Bangles. Give yes. me your hand, yeah. darling. Yeah. Good song. Yes. An Eternal Flame. I think I thought that was just one word at the time. I didn't really know what it meant. <laughs> Is this burning? An Eternal Flame. flame. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Say my name. <laughs> so was this the dream then, um, this, this pop stardom that you have now? Like, what was your dream career then? I mean, I didn't really have a definition of pop versus just I wanted to be a singer and right. I wanted to write songs. And I think it's, um, I don't know, been a gift that like pop is 
kind of allowed me to explore all genres of music that I love. And it's such a widespread word now. It's not like just this idea of like has to be one thing. And, and even with this album, I think I've explored that even more of just like what kind of music do I want to make? So, yeah, I, I feel like this this was the dream. I'm very lucky. I, like, I, it doesn't pass me by. So we're going to talk about your new record in just a minute. But I do want to talk about the song most people probably recognize you for. Have a listen to this. You cookie showing and me hunger growing. Let's get skim milk flowing. We'll start this snack going, baby. Hey, me just met you. That is and so weird. Crazy. <laughs> you sound really you different cookie, now. So share it, this is like my favorite cover of the song. Hands down. Hands down. That is Tom Waits. No, that is... It kind of sounds like... kind of does, yeah. doesn't it? In a way. That is uh, Cookie Monsters... Yeah, man! ...version of Carly Rae Jepsen's <laughs> Call Me Maybe. So at the, at the SoCan Awards, when that song was recognized as like the most performed song in SoCan history, at one point they played a bunch of covers of Call Me Maybe, all these different people singing the song on YouTube. I mean, that gotta be that got to be meaningful to you, right? It, yeah, it's nuts. I mean, that's the part where you can't really control when a song kind of gets a life of its own like that. And we were struck by lightning, and it was so cool to see just, like, how many people re-sung the song. And I can remember being in an airport once and actually standing next to a little girl who uh, kind of recognized me but didn't really feel brave enough, I guess, to say hi. And I was smiling, and she just quietly sang the entirety of the song to me. And I was like, this is so cute. It was it was just one of those moments where I was like, wow, this is, this is taken off in a way I never imagined. If you're just tuning in, I'm Tom Power. This is Q. I'm speaking with the Canadian pop star Carly Rae Jepsen. We've been talking about her massive breakthrough hit, Call Me Maybe, which kind of laid the groundwork for all the pop music she's making today. Like, have a listen to this. That's a little bit of Party for One by Carly Rae Jepsen, my guest today. It's a great song, by the way. Thank you. Um, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning. You know, The last time we spoke, we talked about you writing 200 songs per record and whittling them down. You, we can chuckle all we want, but it's true, right? It is, yes. It's actually like a sad farewell when you kind of pick the album. It's a happy and it's a sad thing because you're excited to start to share what you've done. But then it's sort of like waving goodbye to all these like all this energy that you put out into these other directions too. So, so did your whittling down lead you to any kind of like idea of what this new record's going to be about? Kind of the theory of what it is to be dedicated <laughs> to someone to to choose the right one and then the thick and thin of it all. I think I've been kind of uh I don't know, thinking about that in my real life and my real relationships and I am very obsessed with the, the subject of love <laughs> and I, I can't seem to stop writing about it from all different angles. But not just love, but dedication. Mm-hmm. What is it that interests you about dedication? I don't know. Maybe it's that um, I'm very picky about who I fall in love with and who I can imagine linking my life to. And mm-hmm. this idea that that's something that you do is, is hard for me to get my head wrapped around unless you, you really mean? find the right one. What do you mean? 
Um, uh, you know, the idea of uh, marriage, of, of linking yourself to one person has been hard for me to, to do. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> Putting me on the spot. Uh, no, listen, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing any favorite balloon TNT questions here. I'm not doing any of my – and we all know who it is. Uh, I don't know who it is. I'm joking. No, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, I don't even know who it is. <laughs> I don't really know to go where to go from there. But that's... Yeah, no, it's some truth. There you go. So, is this is this idea of dedication something you find yourself subliminally writing about? Um, I, I uh, what do or, you mean or, by that? Or was it something you were intentionally trying to explore? No, actually, there was a song that didn't make the album called "Dedicated," but it felt so fitting, still in theory. So that's sort of where I got the title. And then the word itself had some music to it, some rhythm. "Dedicated," I like the way it sounds. That's a strange reason to pick a title, but there mm. you have it. Um, yeah, and the song I, it was a, a new relationship that I was kind of excited about, and. Um, uh, and yet it had its challenges right from the get-go, and I found myself sort of sticking with it because there was something stronger pulling me to say yes rather mm. than no. Do you feel any less pressure on on your music to be um, as absolute gangbusters, number one successful as it possibly can be when you've already had a single that pretty much broke every single record in the books? <laughs> I don't know. I think it would be bad energy to go into any sort of writing situation and be like, I have to be gangbusters, number one success versus like, I have to do something that feels heartful and real and whatever happens, happens kind of thing. Um, but I'm definitely looking for like all of the elements, all the flavors that make a good album of, of what has the high energy, what is the slow jam, what kind of you want to listen to when you're in the party mood and also when you're just wanting to kind of be introspective and kind of have a, a real listen. I love the idea that you still think about records. I mean, so many young musicians come in here. I mean, I'm old-fashioned that way, yeah. But we kind of are, aren't we? Yeah, I guess so. It's a... Um, it's a beautiful thing, the, the the album to me, the, what that whole, like means from beginning to end. I, I wrestle a lot with the order, and I know that in this day and age, you're just going to shuffle through. But it, it, every song, number three is there for a reason. Number seven was always going to be number seven. <laughs> okay, so let, let's hear another track. Here is number three off Carly Rae Jepsen's new album, Dedicated. Don't give it up. lovely top line in that chorus hey what a lovely melody thank you that's carly ray jepson with the song now that i found you a song that was also used to help promote the new season of queer eye on netflix and you know it just feels like the latest example of your music being so kind of warmly embraced in particular by the lgbtq community you know was there a moment where you kind of realized like hey there's a there's a community that seems to be rallying around my music yeah i think i mean um we were very fortunate, but I um, was invited to play a, a couple of Pride festivals, and it, I just tell you, there's nothing more fun than that. Mm. It's just it's the most fun. And um, and then I think after that, we were seeing just like through Instagram and comments and stuff, just uh, like a, a swell of just positivity and like lovely comments. And so to be embraced by uh, such like a lovely community, I, I couldn't be. I couldn't be happier. Does it give you any sense of like a responsibility or or? Um... Yeah, I think we all have a responsibility to to fight the good fight and to make sure we're doing it with love. Um, and uh, every day with every performance, uh, we're thinking of new ways to, to do that. I, I, it brings up an interesting point because 
you, you noticed when we were talking a little bit about dedication and about love and even now that I found you, like I personally am not incredibly interested in who you're dating or, or whether you're dating anybody or anything like that because it's not really my business and I don't think it's the show's business and I'm sure you get enough of that from People Magazine and stuff like that. However, I understand that to be a performer these days, especially a performer within – I know pop music means so much, but in like you're you're very famous and you're very famous in a very interesting way. How do you do at being Carly Rae Jepsen, the pop performer, the kind of pop star, and then Carly Rae Jepsen or Carly, the human that you are when you close the hotel door? I don't really think I separate them as two different things. I know some performers do. They've got like this stage idea. I feel like I'm just I'm, I'm just myself and I'm myself performing and I'm myself at home. And obviously you get to be like a little bit more theatrical and over the top when you're on stage, but that's a very sincere part of my personality. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the right answer, but that's the, the true one. Is there someone who has a dream career? Like when you are thinking about <laughs> the way things are going to go for you? Is there someone you, you look up to as, if I, if I can have that kind of career, everything's going to be okay? You know, I think a lot about that because it's a hard industry and you don't see a lot of um, pop stars kind of land well. It's always like a crash and burn. What do you mean? Uh, you, got, you kind of see... Um, I mean, there are those who do. You either there's like a, a disappearing act, or especially like it's such a youthful job to be a part of, and then you see people do it really well. Mm. Um, but it is sometimes like a little bit of a rocky landing um, to age in, in pop music mm-hmm. and to still want to keep doing it. It's yeah, uh, um, there's you know there's there's lots of people who get lost to the drugs and alcohol and the rock and roll of it, or even the, the the lack of fame can be hard for some. I think it's really important to have a good plan for how you land and. Uh, for me, I think I look at um, Cindy Lauper as a really good example of someone who's doing it really classy and really well and still having fun. I actually get to go to New York to be a part of one of her events, and I get to sing Girls Just Want to Have oh, Fun, and no I'm so way. excited. Do you, did you, have, you, have you gotten to speak to her about any of this stuff? No. I mean, we've had like passing moments on carpets together, but we haven't had like a dinner heart to heart. Maybe one day that would be lovely. Do you think pop music means something different now than it did when Britney and the Backstreet Boys were releasing their music back then? It does to me. It does to me. I think I had a very narrow idea of what it was. You had to look a certain way and wear certain things and be able to dance certain things. And I mean, I cannot dance to save my life. So thank God that it's evolved in my own mind that that's okay. And it's fine to just like be a little bit more rock and roll up there and just mm-hmm. have fun and do whatever your body naturally wants to do. And like, and it can still be a good time. I feel like a lot of people are taking it seriously in a different way too. You know, like I'm on this uh, subreddit called Popheads on, on Reddit <laughs> and they love you, man. Oh, like that's you so are, nice. you are their one true God. Um, but it is, <laughs> but it is, it is almost like a deep academic discussion of all things pop. And I think that like people like you and uh, Troy Sivan and Justin Bieber, um, have really changed how we think about pop music. That it's, it's a, it can be a really kind of sophisticated genre of music. Is that, does that cross your mind? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people think of pop as like a guilty pleasure. But my question is like, if it brings you pleasure, why feel bad? Um, I think also pop 
I think it was always sort of classified maybe as something really easy to write. But I, I think that the opposite is true. I think when you can be indulgent and go off in like this like artistic way, that's lovely. But to actually be focused on what it is to have a top line, it's like an old standard jazz song. You have to be careful and select about every word that you're using. You don't have a lot of time to do it. So um, I think it's actually kind of become a little bit more well-known that that is um, a, a, a challenge. And, and because of that, I think it gets a bit more weight. So I'm, I'm very happy that that's the way people are seeing it. I'm not asking for your favorite, but I'm going to ask, like, what, what's an example of a, like, a perfect pop song to you? Um, nothing Compares to You um, by Prince, sung by Sinead O'Connor. I like her version of it. I think it's a pop ballad, but it's just like, from the beginning, you're just, you're hooked. It's been seven hours and fifteen days since you took I mean, those melodies in the chorus, it's just... Anytime that your arms need to open up like this and you want wind in your hair on the top of the mountain, that's a good, that's a good sign. Cause nothing compares, nothing compares to you. We talked, started talking a little bit about, you know, you, you, you knew you wanted to be a performer. You knew you didn't want to just be a singer, a, a songwriter. We've established that. But, you know, Carly, you've already had a, a pretty amazing career. I mean, you've had, you've had a single that will live on, I mean, I hate to say it, but like will live on far beyond you. It will be sung hundreds of years after. That's the point. That's the good news. I mean, I guess so, hey. You want to leave things before you go. I just, I just guess that. <laughs> I don't know why I got all I, New York when I said that. I just guess it's like taxi wisdom. I, just, I, just, I never want to phrase someone's death as a good thing. <laughs> I never want to say, well, here's the good thing. You're going to die someday. <laughs> Am I? No, no you're not. I'm Carly oh, Rae Jepsen. I'm going to live forever. <laughs> but now at this stage in your career, this new album is coming out. Your last album was such a, a critical success, and I think it brought a bunch of new fans to you that, that maybe weren't there before. Um what 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 is your dream now going forward? Um I have a few of them. I think um I think it's been uh, interesting to kind of get this project done. I think uh I, I'm never going to want to stop making music, but that doesn't mean that that won't shift. I think even sitting next to my dad last night watching some of like these songs come out, when we went to the jazz round, I'm like, it would be so cool one day to do a jazz album. Like Maybe when I'm 45, he's like, don't wait that long. And I was like, you're right. Let's do it. So I think um, I have music goals, work goals, and then I have like personal ones too. I would love to like figure out how to decorate my house. I feel like I live in an empty spot for three years because I'm so frozen with what to do. Little things like having normalcy in my life too. Too, even with all the chaos. I think that's a balance I've been working on for the last three years, and I'd like to continue getting better at that, too. So those sound small, maybe, but those are, those are what I'm going to go for. Am I bad for you? Because I live for the fire and the rain and the drama, too, boy. And it feels like you never say what you want, and it feels like I can't get through. That is Carly Rae Jepsen and Too Much. You'll find that on her album, Dedicated. Her latest album is called Dedicated Side B, and it's a collection of songs she says she left off last year's record. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Stephanie Meyer from Twilight. And I got to tell you, when you've when you've written a book like book series like Twilight, you would expect 
um, to have, I guess, the most confidence in the entire world. There was something very human about Stephanie Meyer just talking to me about how it doesn't solve your problems. If you're anxious, if you're sad, success doesn't solve your problems. I really, I mean, there's a world in which that's a depressing conversation, but what it really was was a reassuring conversation that we're all just dealing with the same stuff. All right, later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.